Cybersecurity red teaming is a multi-layered attack simulation designed to assess an organization's security controls. The idea is to emulate attacks from real-world adversaries and see how the organization's defenses hold up. Ultimately, organizations can take the lessons they learn from a red team engagement and apply them to strengthen their security posture. Highly trained red teamers will emulate adversaries by exploiting technology like networks and applications, people like staff, contractors, and partners, and physical assets like buildings, data centers, and operational platforms. In this episode, special guests David Hunt, Alex Manners, and Brian McCord discuss what red teaming is, how people get started in the red teaming world, and how organizations can employ red teams. With me, I have David Hunt, who's the CTO of Prelude. David heads up work on the Operator Command and Control platform. Previously, David spent 15 years in offensive security and management roles at organizations like MITRE, Rockwell Collins, John Deere, Kenna Security, and FireEye. Alex Manners is a principal cybersecurity engineer at Prelude. Alex is a prior U.S. Air Force Cyber Warfare Officer and has worked in security engineering and management roles at Khaki, MITRE, and Amazon Web Services. Brian McCord has a background in developing cyber capabilities and planning offensive cyber operations for the U.S. military and beyond. He helps bring the hacker mindset to bear as vice president of labs at Ship 5. David, Alex, Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to have you. Well, I'm really excited about this. So uh, we did a podcast episode um, a couple of weeks ago about penetration tests, uh, and it was part of a broader kind of survey of different concepts for offensive security and cybersecurity research. And something that I think happens a lot is people will conflate red teaming and penetration testing. And so I'm really excited to dig into the details of what red teaming means to you guys, given all of the background that you have, uh, and helping to illuminate what some of these differences are. So maybe I thought we would start with some of the basics and just answer the simple question of what is red teaming? Yeah, totally. I can just hop in on that one. So the way I tend to refer to it is creative security testing is what I tell a lot of people. You have antivirus, which does one thing, file signature, among other types of signaturing on a computer. You have vulnerability scanners, which will probe external systems for known vulnerabilities. Then you have this wide open gap, which is what is all of this in between? Where are these holes that nobody knows about that the adversary is taking advantage of? And so the way I like to refer to red teaming is it's testing for those holes in all sorts of creative manners. Gotcha. And I guess organizations, it's pretty clear why they need to do just penetration tests in general, right? Like you've got security control measures that you put in place, you have uh, security operations centers, you have professionals that are responsible for defending your your networks. Why would an organization go the next mile and bring on red teamers? I guess I'll start it with uh, one, of, one of the things that I always talk about is advanced persistent threats and the keyword being persistent. Um, it And what red teaming does is it forces your organization to take a step back and have an honest assessment about um, something that I call like your critical asset list. What matters to you? What are your crown jewels? And then what is an appropriate amount of risk that you're willing to accept around uh, either those crown jewels being destroyed, uh, exfiltrated, or otherwise leveraged by a malicious actor? So red teaming is a way that you're able to actually 
practically apply that concept. And that's important not only for larger organizations. You have larger organizations that can employ lots of red teamers and can do that continual testing to determine whether or not their crown jewels, their critical assets are properly defended. But you also have smaller organizations that can't afford that type of technology and can't afford that type of team that have the same business requirement. So red teaming allows you to get after that problem of defending your critical assets, um, but it all depends on like what level of effort those red teamers are going to be able to put towards that problem set. That makes and, and I really like the the difference between penetration testing as well and kind of emphasizing that. Early in my career, we did a lot of penetration testing, and it's it's kind of like uh, if everybody's familiar with the uh, spreadsheet of Dune, the sod. You have this enormous spreadsheet with these things to ch- literally check mark uh, on the Excel sheet. It's like, okay, well, I did this, that, and the other things. You go through hundreds of things, all compliance based, and that's like your penetration test. And it's like highly ineffective because at the end of the day, all you're able to do is test what somebody else determined generically you should be testing on a security system versus red teaming, which is where you can take the intelligence, the experience, the background of individuals that do this on a day-to-day basis and emphasize them to do security work. Right. And it's like highly tailored to the specifics of the target, right? Totally. Which is like penetration testing is just sort of a cookie cutter template sort of thing. Yep. Is, in your opinion, is penetration testing sort of a precondition for red teaming? Or do you think that we could essentially dispense with penetration testing altogether and move towards a more red team approach? That's a great question. I think, uh, <laughs> I think that there, there's probably still some value in penetration testing for the right industries, uh, things where you have uh, regulations that are important. Uh, compliance-based industries will probably have some value in penetration testing, but penetration testing itself doesn't replace red teaming. But in a lot of organizations, red teaming can replace penetration testing uh, because there's just such an overlap outside of that regulatory type of thing. Gotcha. And Red teaming is like kind of an interesting term. So penetration testing is fairly clear where the etymology of that comes from. You are <laughs> testing whether a target can be penetrated. But um, well, you red- you say that you say that though. But but I have come across more than one person in my experience that confuses penetration testing with like when they hear pen testing, literally testing of pens, like <laughs> ink. <laughs> Believe it or not, that is an actual misconception that you get in the non-security side. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, well, I guess when you're talking about the writing implement industry, it can get a little confusing <laughs> if you're going to go to BIC and pitch a, uh, a pen test on them. Uh, you probably need to be highly specific. So that's a good point. <laughs> go ahead, Josh. No, no, it's all, it's all good. Um uh, now you got me thinking about colors of ink and stuff. So, I, you know, um, the, my dad dad joke brain is reeling. Um, but uh, for, so red teaming is kind of an interesting term. Um, and, you know, I've heard of purple teams, blue teams. Can we dig into like a little bit of what the etymology of those are and like what are, what are the different components and, and how they fit together? So this is kind of uh, the way I see it is that like, in pen testing, you know, you kind of have somebody looking for where's Waldo, right? I'm going to look at every square inch of this attack surface, see if there's any known attacks that could be uh, exploited here. And I'm going to let you guys know, right? I don't know who's coming at you, but this is the place they get in. For red teaming, there's sort of that intelligence of like, there's an adversary in mind. I know I'm a bank. I know these sort of criminals like the target banks. And I know this is what they like to do. So once you start getting into the red teaming space, now you're thinking more almost like a battle, right? Like you have your good guys, which are the blue team. So those are your defenders, those IT guys who are watching the, 
the space who are trying to defend against the expected attacks from the red teamers, right? So red teamers uh, who are white hats, aka guys trying to help people defend themselves, are really just playing a role of the eventual expected attackers. So I like that Alex brought up APTs, those advanced persistent threats, because those are groups that security companies have identified as like, hey, these are a group of people who are very like consistent in how they do business and the goals they try to achieve. And actually they give you kind of a, a character sheet, if you will, about what kind of attacks to expect from this kind of group. And then if you look at all those groups and then you look at the customer and say, hey, I'm a bank, these kind of groups have targeted banks in the past. They've gone in through these kind of methods, like they target Windows services or they target phishing emails. They try to fish their way into systems and they have plans and they're usually pretty consistent. Then you can have someone come in and play a role and now there's a narrative, right? So we're playing the enemy, that red diamond on a military square, right? And saying, I'm going to try to act like the enemy would act to get all the way in to achieve my goal. And if I win and I capture that flag, right, we were talking about the CTF podcast a while ago, like these are guys practicing for these kind of work, then I win. And so that's really what Red Team is doing is it's like connecting a narrative where you're not just looking at stuff from a very like machine oriented, look at every different slice, but you're trying to like act a role and see if the defenders can defend against that well. I, I really connect with that as well, coming from the military that it's, uh, you know, red team to me always meant op for opposition force, right? Every military exercise I was ever a part of, there's always a red cell. And that red cell is, you know, whether it's air, space, sea, land, right? They are the person that is driving the op, op for opposition forces narrative through, through that exercise. So I think it's just kind of taking that military concept and terminology and applying it to the commercial sector is what we're really seeing. Gotcha. And, and what are blue and purple teams? So I'll, I'll jump in on the blue side there. So as we mentioned, we have the like the op four in the military, right? The the red cell, the red force, or red team in commercial sector. You have your blue team, um, and your blue team can consist of a whole various slew of forces, if you want to call it that. Uh, but in largely, it's your security operations center. It might be inside your SOC. You might have your tier one analysts that are actually triaging those initial alerts. And then as you get deep, depending how your SOC is set up, you might have threat hunters that sit at a different tier in your SOC, and they're going to be looking for those APTs that might, or whatever the red team is on your network. So it really depends on every company, every organization. They're going to have a different structure for what their blue force is. But that blue team is a good term to kind of encapsulate all of those components of their defense and the easy question is uh, i think that springs out of that is why so many colors uh, <laughs> and i think you know the, the emergence of purple which is kind of the new one is is really interesting because it's kind of like uh devops it came up in a similar way as devops came about a decade ago it's because the red and the blue skill sets are just so wildly different even though a lot of people look and they're like oh a security it's their offense or defense but the skill sets are so different that they can not communicate well when in the field and in an actual exercise. So purple has kind of emerged as being able to not be an expert in red, not be an expert in blue, but be able to bridge the gap and add that kind of extra benefit to an organization that is able to afford such a team. Uh, and it really does help that communication gap in the same way that DevOps helps, you know, the software engineering development teams talk to the sysadmins in the, in the system. 
Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, like having your teams talk to each other at some yeah. point and collaborate, right? Um, so uh, what, what strikes me as an interesting challenge for small and medium-sized enterprises is that, you know, when I've talked to some of, you know, our, um, you know, uh, our, our veteran um, uh, people that have spent time in the military doing cybersecurity jobs that'll come out and work at an enterprise like a, you know, big Fortune 500 company, they'll have an entire red team including like tool development shops that'll create tools to emulate threats. Uh, you know, they'll have full-time operators whose whole job is to like conduct these red team operations. That's pretty expensive. You talk about, you know, cybersecurity talent is, is not cheap and you're talking about, you know, potentially a dozen or more people that are dedicated to this, this, this 24 seven task of, of constantly evaluating the cybersecurity posture uh, from an attacker's perspective. But if you're like a small or medium-sized company, like you absolutely cannot take that overhead. That's that's a huge amount of GNA for 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 a small company to be taking on. Like if you're a small, medium-sized company, what do you do? Yeah, you've you've got to take advantage of autonomy. You have to use autonomous systems in order to bridge that gap of cost. I'm going to toss one more problem in that you didn't mention, which is consistency, because you have two problems when it comes to manual red teaming which is the cost and the consistency. Call it the two Cs, we'll just invent that term. Um, so the consistency side is is kind of a, a dual issue. So you may hire a red team today and they may find 10 vulnerabilities. You may hi hire a different red team six months from now and they may find five vulnerabilities. And so the simple question is, was the first red team better than the second one? Or did you patch five things? There's no standard for making that determination of consistency. And so you can spend a lot of money, as you mentioned, like that's a big problem, the cost. And you might not be getting what you thought because the consistency issue, it's so much, it has so much to do with the individuals, the staff and the talent. And so the, the way to get around that for smaller and mid-sized companies is to leverage automated systems that can do red teaming. Uh, and they're capable of not doing maybe the extent of a manual red team at that expertise but to cover that 80 to 90% of red teaming that can be automated. So you can catch all the obvious stuff. So you can have your, your manual red teams, if you can afford it, to come in and do this high level, like really targeted type of security testing. Yeah, David, I'm not surprised that's uh, some of your response to this <laughs> this question. It makes a ton of sense to me, but you're, you also have deep experience in building tools for for automating uh, red teaming. So you know, you're a core developer on, on, on MITRE Caldera. Um, maybe could you talk a little bit about that project and, mm -hmm. and what sorts of uh, things it's able to automate? Awesome. Yeah, I love talking about that topic. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I, I joined MITRE uh, in order to take over the MITRE Caldera project, which is an autonomous adversary emulation framework, completely free, completely open source. Uh, and the whole goal there was to do cutting edge research, so what MITRE does as a research and development center, and do that cutting edge research into decision making and seeing if we could build a automatic red team that could make decisions in a similar way, not exact, but a similar way as an adversary in the field which would allow these small and mid-sized companies to be able to take advantage of such a program to start doing advanced security that is like currently out of their budget. And so we did that work and I, and I really credit a lot of that MITRE Caldera work, not just me, Alex was also, you know, our, our, uh, our head research uh, team lead, as well as a number of other people at MITRE right now that are, you know, were critical in, in the success of that project. But I credit that project with kickstarting what's known as the breach and simulation industry today, 
And we've seen a lot of companies kind of spring up uh, that are doing the same thing, which is what MITRE exists to do is to really like, you know, lead the industry. And so we've seen that happen. And we've started to notice a trend of, of smaller and smaller companies getting into this space where only large corporations and government entities and agencies were able to play. And I think that is that's going to make a difference in the in the long run. Yeah, because it's like rather than having a security totally organ like security organization totally organic to a company, mm-hmm. now you've got a framework that allows you to bring in a, a very high level of red teaming capability into your organization without having to keep a dozen people on staff to do it. Right. Yep. I guess one of the you know putting on my my like business owner risk mitigating hat for a second one of the things that would worry me would be okay wait you're gonna have uh, autonomous is this like skynet is it like some autonomous system that's like gonna <laughs> hack all my computers and then hold hold my stuff ransomware for you know uh, how how do you how do you like put boundaries on autonomous systems as they're like rampaging through your network i'd like to actually answer that question by totally. asking you a question right back um <laughs> What Wait, is this the, is my podcast. You can't answer that. <laughs> what, you as the business owner, what is the acceptable amount of risk you're willing to take when it comes to an actual threat entering your network, your live production network, and actually ca- causing havoc, creating chaos, and exfiltrating things that are critical to your business? Totally. So, so ultimately, is, is, yeah. it's a risk it's a risk analysis, right? It's cost right. benefit analysis. Like what is the cost associated with it and what is the benefit associated with it? Yeah. So you'd almost say that the people that are most concerned about the answer to that question are the people that need the tool the most. Yeah. <laughs> That's and, a great and, way. Yeah. And, and and like one example that I always use, and we have it in the notes for later, so I don't want to get too deep <laughs> into it, but Netflix really embraces that concept. Yep. very well. And I love that they do. They they put out the tool that they use called Chaos Monkey, which will randomly just start turning off the services in their production live Netflix, Netflix yep. enterprise to make sure that they've built a resilient system. And you have a lot of other, you know, chaos engineering is what it's called. You have a lot of other applications of chaos engineering in general. But when you have people not willing to take that same kind of mentality and risk on their production network when it comes to cybersecurity, it kind of begs the question, if you're afraid to let your team, your known people, use this tool in your network, why are you willing to let an adversary do it? Right. Yeah, it's a great point. And Brian, this is something we talked about um, in our first podcast episode, actually, which is like how counterintuitive it is that you would attack something that you're wanting to defend or in Netflix's case, like, wait, hold on, let me get this straight. So we're concerned about reliability and you're going to install an agent onto production systems that is literally going to cause service outages. Like, how does that make any sense? But the whole idea is that it, it flips the mentality for the engineers to just assume compromise, assume failure and build robust systems that we can reconstitute quickly and that we can shorten the flash to bang of, hey, we got an adversary inside of our network. We're going to reduce that time from nine months to like nine minutes so that we can kick them out and we can remediate the damage quickly, yeah. right? And it's, in a lot of ways, I think you hit it right on the head with like the assumptions are changing now, right? Yep. That's why purple and red teams are showing up is because it's not like ARPANET in the 80s, 90s, right? We're like, maybe only a very particular type of people are going to attack us if we have something really interesting behind this. Now, everybody is like, no matter what you're producing, like parts for a car or you're producing little handheld Tamagotchis or something, like you're going to assume it's going to get attacked if it's connected to a network. 
Like that's just the assumption. Right. Especially because automation cuts both ways. Not only can it help you defend by automated blue teaming and like looking for anomalies or automated red teaming where you've got a constant pounding that helps your defenders train. Uh, but you can also automate actual attacking. You know, you go to these giant databases with all sorts of information about open ports and services like Shodan or something. And the attackers have tools too that help them automate and sift through where the juicy targets are or just targets that as soon as like a vulnerability is published that they can at scale just attack. And if only 1% of those attacks turn out, they might still have hundreds of new units for their botnet or that one really interesting like persistence now in some bank or some you know government agency or who knows what. You only need it to work once. That's the advantage of the attacker. Only needed to work once to really find value. So those assumptions are changing all over the map, which is why, just like in the NFL, like you don't want to test out your plays when you go face the team on Sunday, right? You want to hire a group of red shirts for your practice squad, test everything out, and work out the kinks on the home field. That way, you put on a good show when the team shows up on Sunday, right? It's the same sort of. You also want to hire Tom Brady if you can. <laughs> if you can hire the GOAT, then that's like very lucky. <laughs> so, Brian, you hit something that I think is is really interesting, actually, which I don't really hear this talked about very often, but the defenders use automated systems left and right. They rely entirely on them. Antivirus is an automated response system. Everybody's comfortable with it. And a company will install it on everybody's computer, and that program will delete files that it Things unanimously are malicious. What happens if that antivirus were to delete somebody's crown jewels, password files, all these things that would be like company secrets? Totally possible. But you as a company have made a decision that you're going to trust this autonomous responding agent on your machine. So it's just like it's meant for security. The offense is the exact same thing. It's just a little bit of a different perspective. Yeah. And so this is really interesting. I mean, what Obviously, you have a super deep understanding of how Caldera is put together and, and, mm-hmm. and how the components fit together and what that architecture looks like. What does, um, for example, an uh, you know autonomous EDR look like? I'll, I'll answer that question. I, it just reminded me of of like a really interesting red team strategy. Um, David's talking about back to his original point about people being comfortable with um, endpoint solutions for defense, right? But one of the best command and control frameworks, one of the best implant and command and control frameworks out there is your EDR system, is your endpoint detection system. I thought you were going to say PowerShell for a second. (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, PowerShell's great. But if, I mean, if you think of it this way, if uh, an adversary compromises your your insert EDR vendor here server, they control all of your endpoints. They can upload files, they can download files, they can modify whatever they want on those systems. So they have a de facto command and control framework in your network. And to get to the automation side of that, I mean, if they can get onto that command and control framework that exists on your network that you installed, but for a totally different purpose, they can automate whatever they want. They can push out scripts to every single host to download and install ransomware and then run that ransomware, right? So it's it's, it's kind of strange that it's even a conversation to get a lot of these tools onto people's networks when they're already there. They just have a different branding and different marketing behind them. Right. And a different intent, right? It's yeah. like, it's the same code. You know, I can't tell you how many times you look at an EDR tool and you look at a rootkit and they're 
they're indistinguishable, you know, in so many ways. Um, because what's the first thing you're going to do as an attacker when you get onto a box? You're going to look for EDR tools. You're going to look for endpoint security products. And so they're going to use the same techniques that you are to try to hide themselves in the noise so that uh, you, 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 you don't, they don't get detected, right? Um, and so, so much of like building security products is just intent. What do you intend to do with this remote administration tool, right? Um, <laughs> you know, so Brian, one of the things we talk about a lot um, on the podcast is uh, operational technology because we feel like a lot of cybersecurity conversations really focus on uh, information technology when, you know, by dollars, there are actually more dollars of operational technology out in use today than there are IT systems. And so one of the things that's interesting to me about OT is that like the consequences can be far graver than uh, on an IT system. You think about an attacker gets onto an IT system, they can deny service, um, they can lock up files, they can dox someone or release embarrassing details on the internet. Uh, in some cases, we've seen operational impacts. So we just talked about Omnitrax, which was a short line freight operator that got crypto lockered and couldn't conduct business operations. There was like the first example of somebody dying as a result of not getting medical care because the um, uh, the like operational station uh, was was down from 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 computers uh, not being available, or like the county of Baltimore, I think, was unable to process real estate transactions because um, their like title system was down for an extended period of time due to I think it was like not petty or something. But on OT, you can have direct effects in the physical world. Like you have you can cause massive loss of human life, outages of like water treatment facilities, power plants, manufacturing assembly lines, those sorts of things, um, and so. I would imagine that if you're going to red team or do penetration testing of of a of an OT system, uh, something that you have a lot of experience with, Brian, you've got to be really careful about what control measures and boundaries you put in place. Um, maybe you can tell me a little bit about how you think about that space and 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 how customers become comfortable with the idea that you're going to be like hacking things that move in the physical world. <laughs> so sure, and I'm going to warn you up front. I'm going to meander to the answer a little bit. <laughs> Because as we get there, I want to address when Alex was saying, like, this is something you need to look at. I thought almost for sure he was going to say the weakest link was the user, right? Because there's always that aspect of red teaming that uh, typically isn't talked about as much, but can be just as effective, which is like engaging directly with the users of all these systems. So let's say that there's like a building security system that is run on embedded OT systems that we cannot find a way in, they've got firewalls, they've got all their endpoint securities running, it's perfectly hard to get in. But I can call like, you know, uh, the maintainer of the system be like, hey man, I can't get my door to open, my boss is freaking out, I really need to get in there, this conference starts at 10 million, like 10 minutes, it's a million dollar sale, like, can you please just shut it off and open the door and let me in for like two minutes and like, you know, give a story and you'd be amazed at like when you see these red teaming reports of groups that look at physical security and social engineering, things like phishing or phone calls, how easily they can bypass even the most elite, you know, perfectly tuned uh, digital security mechanisms. And in the OT space, stuff like that is even more important because of what you mentioned. Like there are these cyber physical boundaries that we're crossing all the time in OT. So IT like, in my province, is typically focused on the protection and communication of information, right? Sharing passwords or sharing bank account ledgers or sharing, um, you know, new proposals that they want, might want to steal for like business meetings later on, right? 
but what you're protecting in OT land is the actual controllers that move servos, spin wheels, like fire missiles, do all of that kind of stuff. And so uh, when you're looking at it from a red teaming perspective, you realize that these computers were placed on these gen generically mechanical systems because there's like a value that they provide into how these systems operate and they've become more and more embedded where like you couldn't operate this engine or this missile without this computer. And so when you're looking at that, uh, people get worried because these big OT systems are one, way more expensive than your average $500 Dell, actually, like, you know, your low level accounting firm or something. Uh, these are $3 million aircraft or $10 million trains. And so no one wants anything to break. Also, they typically have a very low amount of stock on hand, right? Like I've only got maybe one spare train engine out of my whole, like, you know, California train yard or something. Right? And they're supposed to be in service for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> and I've already got four on back order and nobody can make them because of COVID-19. And so like I'm already a year behind where I want to be. So one of the challenges we constantly run into is like, we ask like, hey, can you give me information about this, uh, you know, the software firmware running on these devices so I can start to reverse engineer them and pick apart the software? Well, no, that is an OEM proprietary thing. and We don't actually own the rights to our own software. We just buy it from company X and run it. So you can't touch that. Okay, we won't touch that. Totally fair. Uh, how about you just give me one and I will look more closely at it, test the inputs, outputs, see what I can do when fuzzing it, that sort of things. They say, well, no, because of the problems I just listed, we've only got one. It's the only spare we have. The train goes down. We need to put it in there. I don't want to pay $3 million for another one and I have to wait a year to get anyway. So I'll let you look at it for a day or two, but please don't break it, right? <laughs> and so you get very limited and quickly about things that can and can't be done. And so I think that's why a lot of commercial companies have like gone towards the IT side of the space, like ICS, Skataland and others is because you can mess with those networks. And if something breaks, maybe you lose some data, but you can put some protective features on that but you cannot break the OT. You know, that stops the Tesla factory from manufacturing, that stops the, you know, gold miner from digging, that breaks everything. And back to Alexander's original point, like, okay, well, if you're so worried about it breaking, why would you risk somebody else coming in and doing this when we, who could go in and say, okay, we promise we won't send this type of message across the line. We promise we won't actively do these kind of techniques that could break this processor which turns down the miner or whatever, uh, when we can put controls in place and help you understand how to block this feature, why would you be so concerned about that if anybody else in the internet, I mean, like, you know, there's stories of people using Shodan to find hydroelectric dams that are connected directly to the internet with like port 80 exposed. And, you know, if you're scared about people like that, <laughs> then like, you know, give us a chance to come in and, uh, you know, really look at stuff you have. So that's kind of an art that we have to play is convincing people that, you know, these things that were designed in the 80s when the internet wasn't real, but are still operating today, like they are now connected and you wanted them connected because you wanted the sensor data, you wanted to Saving use you money. words like the cloud and yep. big data and like you wanted to be more efficient and cost savings with your business operations. But let us help you reduce the risk that that implies to the security of your OT systems. And that's yeah. kind of the game we obviously play. Well, I think that's uh, even it's becoming more and more of an, an issue too because I, I started noticing this trend about five years ago, which is people connecting their IT and OT networks. And 
what seemed to be the trend was people wanted mobile applications where they could control X, Y, and Z in their OT network because they didn't want to have to drive to a physical location and sign in. And they wanted an app. In order to have an app, they needed to connect the two networks. And so where 20 years ago, everybody you know freaked out about oh, the internet and the electrical grid and things are going to go down. Well, about five years ago, it started to become kind of realistic uh, as people are connected. Now, so yeah, I think I think the problem of that security in the OT is such a new space and such a realistic one in the last couple of years. For sure. And like one of the most interesting things about having red teamers as friends is like the stories that they'll tell <laughs> about some of their pen tests. I had um, a buddy of mine who was on the the Navy uh, Navy's red team, and he told me basically he could get into anywhere with a clipboard and a hard hat. Um, and he told me some stories about just like, you know, going into a space, like he'll mix like food dye in like a, a test tube and be like, Oh my God, you guys need to get out of here right now. You know? And then like the entire security team just evaporates because they're worried that there's some sort of like anthrax in the air or something. <laughs> uh, David, uh, Alex, do you have any funny red teaming stories? Ooh, yes. I'm trying to think of the, the non-classified and not uh, <laughs> those type. Um, I do have one kind of fun story. It's not uh, semi, semi red team and security testing and semi kind of uh, tracking people that are on the APT side doing kind of nasty stuff is uh, back in my more naive days, probably 2014 or so um, period. I hosted a public site at hack.com uh, in late speak, uh, H8 and so forth. Um, and on that site, I use it as a public forum to, uh, it was a honeypot system, a series of servers online that were connected in order to try to attract uh, people that were doing very malicious things in order for myself to learn what different techniques and procedures were being used. Uh, so you'd hang systems. out like a, a, an intentionally vulnerable system on the totally. internet and then yep. basically watch the Petri dish as like. Exactly. I had a whole series of them in my, uh, I was in Chicago. I had an apartment uh, filled with raspberry pies, like. 30, 40 Raspberry Pis, each one running different types of services. And my goal was to just attract uh, these attackers that were going to try to hack me. And I wanted them to, so I could study their techniques. Well, anyway, so I, I used this website in order to host a top 10 of attackers. And I was doing a little bit of research and can you like geolocate people through uh, the packets they're sending. And so I tried to figure out the best way to essentially reverse proxy chains, uh, common technique to run your connections to proxies. And there's some interesting techniques to that. Um, but what I was doing is I was pinpointing their location in the globe and then listing who I thought they were, as well as like the techniques and things that they were using. Did you have a it, pew pew map on this website? <laughs> I got so many death threats. <laughs> I read it for about a year. <laughs> oh my God. Did you register it in your own name? I did. That was one you of the problems. Bold, is, yeah. You're very I didn't, bold. <laughs> I was very naive. I didn't think that it would uh, attract the... Uh, attention that I got in a negative way. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I love it. Um, well, uh, one of the things that's interesting to me, uh, the way people get into different parts of the cybersecurity ecosystem can be so varied. You know, some people get into cybersecurity um, through, you know, traditional kind of degree programs and stuff, but that's definitely not the norm. I mean, if there's any norm, it's that there is no norm. And some people will get in through like learning how to hack games. And then they realize like, oh, wow, all the techniques I was using to hack 
World of Warcraft, like I can actually write like malware um, or, or, or EDRs or like get into systems programming because I know how to reverse engineer stuff. I know how to write C, C++, low level system programming languages. You know, some people will get into it as a part-time hobby while they're doing IT stuff at, you know, some like service desk. And then they realize like, oh my gosh, I'm actually really good at like this, this, what would eventually become a DevOps kind of thing. Um, for red teamers, uh, what are some ways that people can get into this, into this industry? I mean, you know, going into sharing more kind of like stories of red teaming. I remember like my first instances of red teaming, if you will, were back when I was in like high school. And so, you know, I'm a nerd. It's no secret. Uh, so we would have, you know, LAN parties. Everyone's bringing their computers to someone's garage. And we're playing video games with each other. And then one guy would like leave to go to the bathroom, right? So the question is, what can I do to this computer right now in 10 minutes? And sometimes you come back and people had figured out how to change your password or they would, you know, run a little script in the background that uh, like did something that really annoyed you like in 10 minutes and flip your screen upside down or like really simple stuff like that, but gets you to think about like, okay, if I wanted to break a system, how would I do it? And then over time that can build into like uh, more and more places where you can go to like websites, you know, there are websites that are meant to be intentionally vulnerable, but for the purpose of you hacking it, not just the honeypot people, but saying like, here's challenges, right? Like go to this page and try to like achieve this challenge or this challenge. And then there's um, toolkits out there where you can play with. Now you have to be careful because there's legal implications for what you do. But, you know, if you want to like set up two computers on your home network or two virtual machines and try to hack one from the other, you can go like download a Kali Linux tool test. Like there's whole like communities and kind of product lines that are free and open source that allow you to experiment with these you know, very well-known techniques that are published in either CVEs or like papers or books. You can go and buy books for this. But I think it's like most industries at the end of the day is like, you know, you either get into it by accident <laughs> because you were doing some other job, found out that you needed to do this, complete it, and you liked it. Or you kind of just have a natural growth of interest where like, hey, I did this one thing. It was really fun. How do I do the next thing? You start Googling and then you start buying books. Then you start listening to things and you start asking friends and it builds, right? And so I think there's, luckily, there's a very free and progressive chain of ways to build into this uh, before you get into the deep stuff. This might take you totally off topic, by the way, but <laughs> one of my favorite <laughs> impacts, uh, if you want to call it, uh, attacks you can run, there's a Chrome extension. And I love running this one, by the way. Uh, that will change somebody's images, all the images in Google Chrome uh, from whatever the image is to a random Nicolas Cage. <laughs> and it's great because it can take, it can drive people nuts so they have no idea why or where it's coming from. Just saying, like, you can toss that into your little toolkit, into your toolkit. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. Uh, it's like a millennial Rickroll. Uh, <laughs> but on the education side, I think that there's, there's a really big trend right now toward, and it should be, uh, toward people in cybersecurity on offense and defense to understand programming. And so like my personal opinion is one of the best ways to get into the industry is through uh, learning a language, whatever it may be, uh, and leveraging that to do better security work. I put a lot of the, the downsides of what we've seen in security as far as what I call security snake oil salesmen, people selling security stuff that doesn't work and technical people buying into it because they don't understand how to code. They don't understand the programming behind it. And if they do, you start to realize, hey, they can pick out bad from good 
uh, a lot easier. So I think that's a, a phenomenal way to get into the industry. It's really smart. And like, what are some, I mean, I have opinions about this, but what do you guys think are like a couple of key touch points for people to get involved with programming if they have an eye towards cybersecurity and red teaming? I would say most importantly, it's picking picking a language and then sticking to it and and trying to solve a problem, any any problem that you're approaching in red teaming, solve it one time and then automate it. Solve it and then write the code to do that automatically, right? And that over time is going to help you grow your skill sets and get to a, a mentality where as opposed to now trying to solve it and then writing the code, you're just going to write the code to try to solve the problem first. And once you can kind of flip that switch, that's where you're able to progress a lot faster and solve problems faster. So okay. it really is like, I keep saying that word persistent, advanced persistent threats, right? They're persistent. So be persistent and continually work and get better at, at both programming, but also how you approach the problems that you're approaching. I think that's so smart. And one of the ways that I think it's easy to be persistent is to pick something that you're passionate about and go build something that's associated with it, right? Like I was mentoring someone who was like really into fantasy hockey, right? Like all these teams and wanted to do this analysis of all these different statistics and things. And he started learning about web APIs and pulling down payloads from these web services that would expose the data. And then he got into a little bit of like data science stuff and figuring out how to run statistical models and, and scenario analysis for different kinds of teams. And before he knew it, um, unwittingly he had learned Python. And, and so, you know, um, there, there are many ways to get into it, but, um, I think, you know, games is a very, very common one. People like pull down, you know, like the Unreal Engine and just start like a Unity framework and start like building games and they just get lost in it. They're like, oh my gosh, I know C++ now. That's amazing. Um, I'll toss in one more thing too. Don't try to learn programming and Vim at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen too many people try to do that and it's just... Not only is it excruciating to watch, it is going to be the most frustrating experience to go through. (laughs) Oh man, that's great. That's a great point. I, I, I can't say enough good things about IDEs, especially for beginners, just because it takes away so much complexity and just gets you in the coding. And like, I think that response loop is really important. Like just like being able to totally create some code test it, see the results of your labor, and then like iterate rapidly that that kind of shortening that is 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 invaluable, you know. And actually, I know this is something that you at Prelude are working on um, pretty diligently is is the idea of taking what, you know, is fundamentally a very high end skill set, being able to red team effectively um, and give newer, more junior folks the ability to leverage Caldera framework mm-hmm. uh, and and emulate very high end red team um, techniques, but in an automated and repeatable way where you're not reinventing the wheel every time. Did you uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about how that works? Yeah, that's the whole goal, uh, and and we're doing that pretty heavily through. It's funny you mentioned an IDE because we're like huge fans, obviously, on the Prelude side of IDEs as well. Oh, there's one of us. We won't mention his name, but there is one <laughs> team member that's uh, very much not in IDEs. Uh, is an Emacs guy or is it Vim? Uh, he is. Uh, I think he's. I think he's an Emacs guy. Okay, have yeah, to that, verify that. That makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> and incidentally, he's also the one that built what we call the attack IDE into operator, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's the ability to build attacks and procedures and write attacks within an IDE-like environment. So he, he wrote an Emacs plugin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. and, and it's awesome because it, it really does lower the bar and the barrier for people in security 
that want to learn how to do this advanced stuff, but don't want to just like fire up a terminal on their Mac, on their MacBook and try to figure it out. You have to have this kind of environment that makes it more accessible, more appealing, because a lot of people get into the industry by watching Mr. Robot or some movie related to that. And they think it's this fast paced, like crazy, you know, experience and they fire up the terminal and try to get going. Uh, but in reality, it takes a lot of patience and it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of time to master these techniques. And I think for us on the building side, as we're building tools to help security companies and non-security companies become more secure, I think for us, that's half the battle is not just helping an organization, but helping their people become stronger. And in order to do that, whether they're new or you know experienced, in order to do that, we need to make the tools they use more accessible. And we need to put something in their hands that they can they can just create more effective tools themselves. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of like when computers first came out. And if you wanted to program, I mean like post punch cards, um, mm-hmm. but like if you wanted to program on a PDP-8 or something like that, you had to know assembly. Like you had to, that was the programming language. This is how you get a computer to do what you wanted to do. You learn this extremely low level thing where you're bumping data around between registers and memory and like stepping through addition instructions, you know, it's just like very, very laborious and tedious. And as we started building higher and higher levels of abstraction on top of assembly, like systems programming languages, application programming languages, we started like lifting programmers out of the mundane details of what's going on in the bits and bytes and allowing them to start thinking in more in terms of business logic. Like what is the problem I'm trying to solve here and how do I get to a path to victory very quickly? And it strikes me that a lot of what you're working on at Prelude is doing that, but for red teaming, where right now the state of the art is you've got these extremely talented very, very expensive cybersecurity professionals who work in these large enterprises to build custom toolkits to emulate an APT and then like build entire command and control chains from scratch to, to support all of these campaigns. Whereas you can take a lot of that low level abstraction and lift it up so that red teamers can work at a higher velocity uh, in, in a more consistent way. So that sounds great, but I'm sure that in uh, this kind of new world of automated red teaming, um, there are challenges, right? Like, what are? Give me a sense of some of the frontiers of what what sorts of research is the community doing to start to understand the limitations of autonomous um, red teaming and, and how you push those boundaries forward. Uh, well, let's just start with the upfront statement: is it's very hard, and it it is not anywhere close to being able to replicate what a real red team red teamer does. Uh, just bluntly state that up front. Um, I think one, there's a whole like slew of problems that, that we are encountering, that we encountered on Caldera and we encounter now in our product. And it's really everything to do with just the amount of unknowns that you have to be able to compensate for in your planning. So there's a whole bunch of different uh, planning methodologies that you can apply. But it's very hard for you to plan against things that you just can't possibly know to be either true or false. You can't even know that that particular thing, whatever it might be, exists. So you're trying to you're trying to design something that can plan for like like Colin Powell says, right? You have your known knowns, your known unknowns, and your unknown unknowns. You're basically trying to write something that can plan for unknown unknowns, which is a very hard thing to do. 
Yeah, I mean, that seems like a really tough problem. And then I'm sure also the idea of, you know, as you're red teaming, like at least in a lot of our experience, when you don't get caught and you're just like, okay, I'm like squatting on this network for the past month and no one has any idea I'm here. I'm going to start ratcheting up the noise a little bit and creating more so that at least we can give the blue teamers a chance to like show how the follow through works on the incident response and things. I would imagine another big part, a big open area of research inside of these autonomous red teaming tools is like, how do I dial the like stealthiness versus effectiveness versus like the noise that I'm creating? Um, is that an area of research that you're looking at? Is that something that um, Caldera can do? And like, where is the direction headed in all of that? Yeah, we've actually, uh, so we built that into the the operator command and control. So that's an area where we're heavily invested. So there's a couple areas of research and this, this one is pretty interesting because if you go on a manual red team, you'll notice that people, the manual red teamers will often hit the ground running on really complex things. They're trying to hide. They're trying to stay, stay away from the blue team. They don't want to be detected, but that doesn't cover the simple cases. Oftentimes the blue team in the defense struggles to catch the things in the, in just in the open that, that should be cop. And so I think it's important to start at that base level and work with the defense in order to come up with uh, their ability to detect the obvious, the Mimicats downloads, the invoking stuff from PowerShell, that type of thing. Uh, once they get good with that, you need to have a system, whether manual or automated, that allows you to ratchet up and say, okay, well, you've got that. Well, let's take you through something that's going to be slightly harder. And then you have to train them at that level. So it's kind of like a game in a way, but you want to go up one level at a time. Right. And yeah, that's, that's the thing, uh, a part of the research angle that we've been doing at, at Prelude is how can we create these, we call them modules. Uh, right now we're calling them stealth. We may rename that uh, over time, but uh, we want to, invite the blue teams to start to train on how to get better and better at detection. The other side of research I'll mention real quick, whole different area, but it's it's equally important to challenges in autonomous red teams, is how do you provide good security recommendations after a red team assessment? This is like a hard problem in manual red teaming, which is how do you give the blue team something they're actually going to use? Because most of the time when I've been in a hot wash, you give the blue team a recommendation and like they do nothing with it for a variety of reasons. And in the autonomous side, it's the exact same problem, except you have one additional challenge, which is how do you automate out of all of this arbitrary information? How do you automate a recommendation that is clear, concise and actionable? Right. Yeah. That seems like a really crucial problem from a product owner Mm -hmm. perspective, which is okay, cool. We can, build this technology thing, but what problem are we actually solving? And the problem, it appears to me, is how do you improve the security controls and defensive posture of uh, of a user, right? And um, what's so critical about red teaming is like distilling the results down to something that is actionable that, that people are going to follow through on. Otherwise, why are you even bothering to do it? You're just giving totally. a playbook for the attacker, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess what, one thing I would love to wrap up with is to explore a little bit of the space of, okay, so it seems almost inevitable to me that we are going to see some level of automation. We're already seeing it, but that the level of automation on red teaming is just going to accelerate. Uh, for all the reasons we've talked about, right? I also don't think that uh, the really high-end red teamers that we all know um, are going away anytime soon. And so what is the, in, 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 a, in a steady state future, what do you see the, the, the complementary roles of manual red teamers and autonomous 
red team tools being? I think what we'll see, and I actually kind of want to preface this with a real quick uh, description about kind of the, the battle space as it is, if you, to use that term. So as, as a nation at the U.S., I'm talking about um, collectively we as a nation need to raise the cybersecurity bar, right? So you have military networks, you have DOD networks. Those are extremely hardened networks. But the vast majority of networks, as we talked about with OT side and and just your general small businesses, uh, mom and pop shops, right? Those are not hardened systems. And when it comes to, you know, you know, forbid we have it, but some kind of large-scale conflict, it's not going to be necessarily the government networks that are going to get turned off. It's going to be the things that give the U.S. The, the will to fight, right? Those are the types of things that we as a nation need to get better at securing. So automation is going to play the role in helping those smaller businesses that can't afford those high-end red teams the means and method to improve their baselines and make it harder for, on average, for anybody to penetrate their networks and to get in and do th bad things. And then as we as, as we as a country get better at doing that, the U.S. again, as we as the U.S. get better at doing that, the higher-end red teams are going to be filling the role of doing the real hard problem solving and figuring out the ways that automation just flat out cannot possibly solve to get into these networks. And then we can take the things, the lessons learned from those high-end red teams and apply those to our automation tools. So it becomes a symbiotic relationship between the red teamers finding those really difficult and really interesting solutions and then applying those in a way that they can be disseminated across uh, automated tools so that we can all get better together. So I can tell you one place where I hope we go with the future technology, and that's to allow defenders to uh, engage on scenario-driven defense. And like, here's what I mean, right? Let's say I'm a big uh, movie-making company, right? I make all kinds of movies, and I know I'm about to release a movie that's going to tick somebody off, right? Does the name rhyme with Shmoney? Is that <laughs> I cannot say. But let's say I'm going to do that, and I expect there to be some sort of blowback, right? How do I train my people to prepare for that blowback? Right. One of the ways I would hope to do it in the future is I can just get one of these automated systems, tune it to look like the blowback I expect, and then have my guys train for that scenario so that the day I release, I'm in a pretty good position. Right, I'm ready for what I expect to happen. Now, will it be perfect? No. But the same sort of things can be applied to governments, right? You know, like, hey, I'm about to transition power to somebody or I'm about to make a policy move and I'm expecting a certain form of cyber-oriented blowback in a very red team format, right? So how do I prepare? In the same way that like military is getting ready to go deploy to a combat zone, you train everybody, right? Like what kind of stuff are we expecting to see? What kind of weapons are gonna use? Like, tell me more about the fight as it's gonna happen before I go. Don't let me figure it out on the fly live, right? And so using some of these automated systems to train defenders to respond to expected, you know, malicious attacks in the future, I think would really help, you know, the overall cyber defense of the United States, both in IT and OT land, uh, to get ready for like, you know, the conflicts of the future, both in the military and commercial space. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's really smart. Well, Brian, Alex, David, thank you so much for joining me on the show, and I uh, hope to have you on again very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. 
To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.